Some people like the lights really low when they give a talk. Some like them bright. I like them in the middle. I've got to give a talk, you've got to look at me. <laughs> or I've got to look at you. Ajahn Amro asked me earlier today whether I would like to just say a few words knowing that um, I was in Hampstead when Ajahn Chah came to visit, when the monks started. And, you know, so to give some impression. And I said at the time when he said, I said, I'm quite happy to, but my knowledge is really through a feeling of uh, what it was just like to be there rather than all the little things he would say or not say in this respect, because most of the little stories which I was there for when he was in Hampstead are in books. So things I would say might you've most already read in a book, but it's more just what it meant to me, really. I will start, actually, at the finish, at his funeral, which might be a bit kind of cutting, but it's something... I was going to leave it to the end, but I thought I'd start at the beginning, at the end. Well, my mother-in-law is a very sweet person and I wouldn't have responded to her in the way I'm going to communicate now because it would have been very impolite. She's very kind, very good, devout Catholic, lovely person. But she's very kind of blunt in certain ways. And then when she heard about my interest, like in monks and meditation, she was like many people would say, what do these monks do? What do they do? They just sit in a forest. You'd meditate in all day. You know, what do you do for society? And I've been said this before, you know, people, and then I've reflected after, you know, other people who are around, I've put it in a polite way. Actually, I was at the funeral, and I mostly come back to the funeral. Ajahn Amro was there as well. Um, at the end, but I said over the two weeks where it led up to his funeral, just briefly, so many people, hundreds of thousands, a couple of hundred thousand people, I think, must have visited to pay respects to him. And the fire was lit by the king of Thailand who came to light the fire. I think he only came to the West about once. When I met him, I think he'd been to France and England and America. I mean, they nipped up to Scotland, so he'd hardly left Thailand. But his sphere of influence was such that there were more people visited him at his death to be there at his funeral, around the time of his funeral, than there were at Woodstock Pop Concert. I always say Woodstock Pop Concert. And that went all the way around the world on film and everything like that. If people are really cutting to me, and really some people can be very blunt, then I say, well, the sphere of influence of that one little man in a forest in Thailand. He only left the forest a couple of times, really, to visit the West. I says, but on his death, people came from all over the world. His sphere of influence was such that people came from all over the world to pay respects to his body. And then if people are really cutting, I would say to them, how many people will be at your funeral? And you're out there influencing the world. Twenty? 
And are you really influencing the world? You know, I could be quite uh, where I come from. And my father was a master of sarcasm, so I can be actually very cutting at times <laughs> if I wish to. I've been in situations where I could be, and I've actually thought, oh, I'd be very compassionate because I'm not responding to this person. So that was his sphere of influence, one little man. Just briefly, I have to say a bit about myself. I know we're living in the age of uh, me too, and it's all about me, <laughs> generation, and in the news, that's all you read. It's all about me. People writing books all about me, me, me all the while. But I will mention a little bit about me. I should try and avoid, <laughs> just to give you some context. Um, I became a yogi, yoga fanatic at 24. I'll say this quickly. Then at 27, I had a kind of accident. And by virtue of this accident, my yoga teacher put me in touch with the only Thai monk in England at that time. And he put me in touch with a man who had been a monk in about 1953, named Kapluwadu, who most of you have heard of. He created the English Sangha Trust. He was a layman when I met him. And I had the fortune to meet him just a few months before he died. And then, of course, when I came in contact with Buddhism, my yoga teacher had been with Ayenga Yoga for 15 years. You know, Ayenga, most people who know yoga, Hatha Yoga know Ayenga, great master. But then when I touched Buddhism, I suddenly thought, boy, this is the genius. I've just been introduced to the genius of history. You know, don't let this pass. And then also I saw pictures of uh, monks. A couple of Wadu was ordained at one time. So naturally there was an inspiration to me. You know, I mean, I'd been married. I had married a good, very lovely wife and children and uh, things like this. So I wasn't immediately going to run off. I didn't rush back home and say, I'm going off to become a monk because we have a debt. If we have children, that's part of our debt. And I've known people who've gone off into monasteries and thought, oh, no, I can come off into a monastery. My girlfriend, she's got my baby. And she said, something there pushes them out of the monastery. It's some sort of a come past come the way the universe works. If you're destined to have to go out there to look to your responsibilities, then it happens. But anyway, so I had family and two Afghan hounds and Sami's cat. <laughs> so I became interested in meditation. So at that time I was doing a technique, quite a very tight technique, which I got a lot out of, even though I'm very speedy and all over the place, very dyslexic. I found a very tight meditation technique. It was very good. I got very inspired by it. So I was with that, and he vowed. He was quite strict a couple of hours. He said, you have to do an hour in the morning, an hour at night, if you want to get anywhere in this. So, and I vowed, an hour in the morning, hour at night, wherever I was, whatever I was doing. And so, just to clip a bit, the place closed down, and then, about two or three years after, it closed down. And then after a couple of years, I kept meditating every day. I would do it every day. I just saw it as such luck. I mean, I'd come through the hippie time and the TM and the Beatles and all this sort of stuff. Um, but I didn't really take that so seriously. But this, it seemed, when I got interested, I really locked into it, the yoga and all that. I was devout, you know. And so I kept an hour and morning, hour and night. And then the place closed down. Eventually, I did a few retreats in the place in Hampstead. That was the Hampstead Vihara. And then 
Just out of curiosity, I said to my wife, who I say, maybe people must probably think, your wife was very understanding, because I was kind of point of renovating an old building at that time, an old historical building. I said, if I save the money to support you all and everything like that for a year, and she used to do part-time, she was a technical illustrator, so she had quite a high-powered job herself, for one year, can I go to Thailand for one year to be a salmonera? And she said, yes, you can, as long as you promise you must come back. And I knew I'd come back. I mean, I love my children. I wasn't going to go there and just go off. So anyway, so I got a checkbook. I started putting money in it. And I suddenly discovered a piece of paper came my way, just a little booklet. And it said, now, I mean, the place is full of Buddhism. This big place, everything, all these monks sit in here and nuns. But back then, it was just a little booklet came my way, and it said about some new little monastery in Thailand had opened up with an American abbot. And I thought, wow, that seems the place to go, you know, because there won't be a language problem. Some of you most probably heard me say this before. So I'm getting on to Arjun Chan. <laughs> then suddenly, just out of curiosity, I thought, I'm going to phone up the Hampstead Vihara. And I phoned up, and a voice said, is that my name was Paul? At the time, he said, is that Paul? And I said, yes. He said, this is Jerry Rowlandson, who, he was actually the first Buddhist I'd met when I first went there years before, in Kapilawado. And he had been left, he was asked to leave, I think, at some time. Because he's a bit rebellious. But lovely person, beautiful artist. So he said, is that Paul? And I said, yeah. And I said, hell, is that Jerry? And he said, yeah. He said, I've been looking for the phone number, he said, because there's an American who's come from northeastern Thailand, a monk. I said, what's his name? He said, Ajahn Sumedho. So I rushed up there that evening from work because I worked in London. I rushed up. Ajahn Sumedho sitting there with Ajahn Anando, who was just Anando Bhikkhu. And Ajahn Sumedho was 42 at age at that time and Varadhamma and Kemadhamma. And I just went immediately in the room and I bowed and I said, excuse me, I said, the mountains come to Muhammad. <laughs> and that's not that I identified Muhammad, it's just a saying, you know. Is it called a simile? Or? It's just an illustration. So I paid my respects and I remember leaving the room and then going out and thought, oh, you have to bow. So I went back in and I bowed, you know. So then I got to know them, so... This is where my dates get a bit muddled up because then it was either at that point or a bit later or something, then Ajahn Chah and then Ajahn Chah came. So then I introduced Ajahn Chah. Ajahn Chah came and I had the fortune that I used to go into London and sleep. I worked in a studio, a commercial art studio which connected to magazines and paparazzi and all this advertising. And I used to go into work in the week because I used to come in from the Fenland and stay in my studio and they had a room there where I could sleep and we had a flat at one time, there was a flat upstairs. So when everybody went home, I could just meditate till I went to bed and then get up early and meditate and come back. So I'd do that and then I'd go home at the weekends and do work at home. But then Ajahn Samedo heard about this and he said, oh... He said, what you could do, we got flats next door, you could live in the flats next door and go home at the weekend so you could be with us in the week. Which to me, this was all, I thought, oh, the gods have certainly listened to me lately. You know, they took me to yoga and 
Brought Ajahn Samadam over from Thailand just for me. <laughs> you know, and I got on the other monks are really sweet. I got on with Ajahn Anando and uh, all of them. So I recount my blessings all the while. I was counting my blessings, you know. And so I did that. So that's what I used to do. And it's a pity other people are not here who could speak much more, who moved in and stayed in. You know, there was Ajahn Majiro was got the flat above me and he became an Anagarika. And uh, Jerry Rowlandson was there and other people turned up. Sister Sundra turned up. She was now, I forget what her lane name was. It was French, I think. <laughs> so you had a kind of commercial artist and a contemporary ballet dancer. You know, an assortment of all these people came through. Yeah, Ajahn Jahasaro was a layman, Ajahn Majiro. And Jerry came. So all I can really go on is impression and then the impact that this had. It deepens my appreciation, even though we have, you know, I've got some pretty bad habits. So even after all these years, so it doesn't all immediately go. You still have to work on it. But I really appreciated what happened at that time. And even now, you know, young monks come here now. People want to be ordained and people ordained back then. Ajahn Amaro and all the other great monks ordained around that time. And it was a time of such a coming of fruition of everybody's parami. <laughs> yes, everybody's good fortune at that time. Their birth to that presence of that time. Their birth, there came forth these monks from Thailand and then this great teacher. You don't realize till it comes upon you. You know, I gave a retreat one night. I think I've told this story. There's about 50 people there. And I had a question thing. And put question said, what do you think of the teachers you've had? The Buddhist teachers you've had. And immediately I read the question. I started sobbing. And these tears started pouring down my face. And I was totally gone, you know. And I said, well, I think that question's been answered. <laughs> but completely unexpected, you know. But yeah, so at that time, and then Ajahn Jah came. You know, it's very difficult for me to speak. I sometimes use an illustration of a Sufi. I heard a Sufi thing about the Sufi mass. He looks at a candle and he said, See this candle, it allows itself to be consumed completely in order to bring light into the world. He said, if you put your hand near the candle, you appreciate the heat that it sometimes has to endure to do this. Meeting Ajahn Chah for me was like meeting somewhere the candle had been completely consumed. But the light was still there. <laughs> Just leaving the light, you know, and that's the sort of effect it had on me. And to be around his presence in Hampstead, in the Hampstead Vihara, Ajahn Sumedho used to do the translating. Well, Ajahn Sumedho himself is a very great man. So, you know, I love Ajahn Sumedho. Ajahn Sumedho was, I think, 10 vas at the time. He was 42 years of age. We joked. I said, yeah, you, you were 42 and you looked a bit like Charlton Heston. He said, you were 30 and you looked a bit like Steve McQueen. We had a joke about it and neither of us looked like, I looked more like Boris Karloff in Frankenstein, I think. You know, as I say, he's a very great monk in his own right. And Tanvi is very great monks. 
At that time, Ajahn Chah was very small, so Ajahn Chah would sit in a seat. Ajahn Sumedho kneeled by him to do the translation, but it was kind of like a similar height <laughs> with Ajahn Sumedho kneeling. So I was there. This is the time you most probably read if you read the books or heard all the stories. Um, you know, when the band was playing opposite, it's the atmosphere which is there. The words are the words, but also there's just a feeling, such a feeling of fullness, you know, around a dynamic teacher. And, and the band was playing in the pub opposite. Windows were open and the noise was doing heavy rock music. And after the Ajahn Chah just sat there smiling in meditation. Then after, you know, he said famous words, you think the noise disturbs you, but it doesn't. You disturb the noise. And in that time in Hampstead, these were the little things he would come out with, you know, which were just so to the point and so lovely. The other thing I did appreciate was being in a, a kind of quite tight technique before that. Suddenly, I hadn't read a lot. I had done sutta study and things like that. I hadn't read Zen or any other Buddhism. I came to Theravadan and stayed with it right from the start. It was always just connected with it. Um, so then there's Ajahn Chan. He was like an open, tremendously open and smiling and he cracked jokes and always smiling, incredibly open. So for someone who had been into something which was quite tight, even though I liked it, to suddenly realize, Phew, it's like it meant you could allow to be you who you are, be your personality and just observe your personality, not kind of lock, be locking it in. I mean, we do have to have restraint. But I picked this up very much for him. It was like a sense of relief and openness. Tremendous openness. And funny things. And this willing to accept. I mean, he'd come from Thailand and come into a strange country. You know, strange people. Very odd people, the English. And then he had all these funny kind of old hippies turn up. And he just seemed to embrace it all. And you knew when he was in the building. And then they used to go Bindabart. And I'd rush up the road and go in the sweet shop. The shops weren't open, so I'd get a Toffee Lux or something, put it in someone's bowl. They'd go for walks. But there was this willingness just to be completely open and free of everything. But also, very disciplined. You had very tight veneer and things like this. But within that discipline, a tremendous freedom and a willing to accept. I mean, now I'm coming into the present day. Now, you know, you've got to call someone the right name or something like this, you know, you get deplatformed or people sue you or if you offend them and something like you've got to say the same right thing to everybody and everybody sees this as spiritual, it's because people are, we're so open and spiritual and liberated and in actual fact, to me, it's being psychologically stumped. <laughs> and, you know, when you meet the more evolved people you meet, you realise that they can actually embrace everything, everything. You know, it's not a case of, I'm so sensitive, you can't call me this, or you can't insult me, or you use the wrong word for me, or something like that. You know, one time, Ajahn Chah was walking up Hampstead in front of all the monks, and some skinhead who had obviously knew something about karate or something, walked past, and he walked past Ajahn Chah, and then slung a foot, phew, like that, you know, gained as if he was going to karate. Took him in his foot, which to ties. Didn't point your feet towards a Buddha or anybody. 
is highly insulting. You know, so this was, and uh, the monks jumped and everything like that, everybody jumped. And, and when he got back to monastery, his concern, and Ajahn Chah just smiled, you know, and just said, oh, you're a very good teacher. <laughs> you know, in other words, this highly respected person. And then this big skinhead comes and wants to throw a foot at him, you know, and he just embraced it. I'm sure if the man had really hit him with his foot, I'm sure the monks would have jumped. I mean, I would have jumped there, had him around the neck. <laughs> I don't know how big he was. I'm a coward unless a principle is involved. Then I'd walk through a wall, and when I'm the other side of it, I have to say, God, that hurt my head. You know, once a principle is involved, so I would have been there. But um, he could just embrace that. This was very commendable, very lovely to see. And it was natural with him. It wasn't an artificial way of being. I said, what did he think of France and England and America? He said, in France, I see Dukkha. In England, I see Dukkha. In America, I see Dukkha. But it did with a smile on his face, you know. So the whole thing, I mean, many people have many stories. It's just this sense of presence of the man. He'd obviously done the work. And we can see what's come out of him, what's come out of it now. I've reflected before I got into yoga, you know, I was a kind of hippie, a hippie with a sports car. Um, you know, I was a smartish hippie. <laughs> I wasn't living in a crash. I was living in a caravan at one time. <laughs> so I was reading books and I reflected. There was a book called Theory of Celestial Influence by a man called Rodney Collins and everybody was all reading things like, Gurdjieff and all these things. I was struggling to read these books. <laughs> you know, but I couldn't really get into them. But this theory, this thing of a, a sun, you know, and then around the sun you have the satellites, the planets. And I reflected on this, you know, with someone like Ajahn Chah, now Ajahn Samedo, you know, you have the sun and then you have the satellites, the planets circulating this thing which is radiating life. And then you've got the big planets close. You know, Ajahn and then he's got his little satellites. It's quite extraordinary the way the universe works. We reflect it. What happens in the end, I think it all just goes poof, <laughs> into the great manifest. The whole lot goes. Hopefully all that will be left is the light. Yes, it's just these stories. As I said to Ajahn Amaro, you know, most of the little things which were said are things which are in books and things like that, but it was just the sense of the fortune of being there and being around that and having Ajahn Chah. He took a soft spot. There's, you've seen the Chittas, the portrait of Ajahn Chah by Jerry Rowlinson. And Jerry Rowlinson is one of my closest, dearest friends. He's dead now, bless him. I'm sure he's in a great artist's paradise in the universe somewhere. And he was quite brilliant at everything artistically, but his room was a dumb. <laughs> you know, full of ashtrays and roll-ups. <laughs> it's quite funny because in the middle of his room, he lived above the shrine room, and he went in his room, and he had a few problems with other people there, you know, because he handled the petty cash, <laughs> you know, so all over the place, so he needed a few people. But out of that, you know, there's this portrait, which is the most famous portrait of Ajin Chah in the world. I used to come home, I used to look to put it home. Jerry had said, because I was an artist, fine artist on fine work, I used to work under magnifying glasses. 
It's a, I've done something slightly with the face. Have you noticed what I've done with the face? And this thing's this big, you know, and he expected me to say, you've slightly shaded the pupil. You know, the art was so perfectionist, you know, you could never have, you know, I didn't have that kind of recollection. But then around it would be ashtrays and bits and pieces of petty cash and everything like that. But Ajahn Chah took a very, this is just my intuition, but I just felt Ajahn Chah took a very strong liking to Jerry. Yeri? He used to call it Yeri. And uh, Yeri, Yeri. And then he'd come in the room and then one time he saw Jerry's explaining the portraits to him and then Ajahn Chah feigned that he was going to rub his hand all over it. He said, yeah. <laughs> Yeri, Yeri. Then he said in Thai, uh, you'll always suffer. <laughs> just just like, like this, you know. But, um, he was quite brilliant. Jerry, when he was younger, had gone to one big art places, so he'd gone glass blowing and took risks where people would blow glass and other people would throw chemicals at the glass to see what effect it had. And it could blow your face off, you know. But apparently in the V&A Museum, they've got some of Jerry's art glasswork, so he was quite brilliant. And Ajahn Chah would like, not that he tempted in that way. I mean, he did used to say, you come to Thailand, you come to Thailand. And I remember him looking through the hatch at me, giving me a big smile and saying, and you, you know, you just <laughs> got the wife and the children, can they come? And the two dogs. They went into London one day. This is I heard from them. <laughs> they went into London one day and then down on the underground, took Ajin Chah down the underground, because it was near the rush hour. So when the underground doors open, the place is packed with all men going to work and pretty ladies and things like this and these the young monks just come from Ananda and ex-commando and all these and they're pretty uptight you know they did very well considering they come from Thailand forest of Thailand and then to be shoved into a house in Hampstead you know and all locked in little rooms and cold in the winter things like this apparently they went down on the underground and then the doors open, Ajahn Chah was behind the monks, and the doors open, there's all these people all crowded to the door, and they're, as I say, pretty ladies. <laughs> they were there. Ajahn Chah just laughed, and first went, pushed all the monks in, <laughs> as if say, deal with that. <laughs> what are you going to do with that? You know, very, very lovely. <laughs> yeah, I don't feel I've said very much, but I think you can gather some sense of... Uh, what it was to be there at that time. I'm sure Sister Sundra, I remember Sister Sundra visiting, but she didn't live there, so to actually be there when he was in and out the room. He would, one time, I remember, I'm not sure it's one prayer, because on one prayer I used to sit up all night because he was sitting, and then I'd go into work the next day from there. I was really keen, gay. I was gang then. You know, they'd talk about austerities, and I'd think, oh, I'll do some of that, I'll do some of that. But one time, many people used to come to Hampstead if they thought he was going to give a talk. So the place was crowded. It'd be crowded with people all waiting on the stairs and everything. Ajahn Chah was going to give a talk. But then he wouldn't come. And then he'd wait and wait. And then later in the evening, lots of people would drift off and drift off. And then when there weren't very many people, then he'd come down and they'd give a nice talk. <laughs> you know, it's like, I make these people work for their money, you know, they've got to be serious practitioners. A very lovely experience, that's all I can say. I deem myself 
incredibly blessed to have been in that situation, to have got interested in Buddhism at that time, as I'm sure most of us have. We've all got our own stories of how we came in contact. And there's a little film, I know Ajahn Amro won't mind me saying, but there's a film from Thailand where they interview people and I noticed this little, like, looked like a baby and it's a young Ajahn Amro, <laughs> little round face interviewing you. You look around for an Ajin Chah, I think Ajin Chah is an Anagara. Ajin Jayasara, I think he's an Anagara in that one, isn't he? And you're all kind of smooth face. Very smooth, these young people. Especially in a world where, I mean, I was in advertising, such a consumer society, essential, me too, you know, and the clinging to identity. Clinging to identities now that you wouldn't want to cling to, I personally wouldn't want to cling to. <laughs> then this teaching that Ajahn Chah give this openness, this complete openness, and being free through understanding the way it works, understanding its nature, its movements, and letting go of it rather than just making it more confusing, trying to mix up all different levels of reality and so confusing time. Another thing about when I came to Thailand to become a monk, eventually when I was 40, Ajahn Chah was ill then. He'd got quite ill. Others, there's a time they took Ajahn Chah to the acupuncture and then they put acupuncture needle in his back. And they said, if it gets hot, they told him, we've got to say hot. It gets hot. They wonder where they burn. They burn the thing on the needle. They put them hot, 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 hot. <laughs> hot, 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 hot. He wasn't without failure, I don't think. Yeah, he was ill. He was practically in bed all the while, I think, when I came to Thailand. But then we used to, every one prayer, we would go round and uh, pay respects to him. They'd wheel him out in, his, in a wheelchair. And I generally would talk to him as if he could hear everything, and he might have been able to. He couldn't talk or anything like that. So we'd chant the Paritas and his favourite Paritas and we would do that every one prayer. And I remember we were on Wat Kern. I was Ajahn Samedo's attendant at the time and uh, he was doing a retreat in Wat Kern and I was sitting there with Kantiko. He's disrobed now. He was a monk, an English monk who I spent a lot of time with over the years. He disrobed after about 17 vars. In Italy, he lives in Italy now. And uh, he was in the rota with Ajahn Chah, that 24-hour rota where people would be tending his body 24 hours a day for nearly 10 years. It's quite something. So I was sitting next to Kantinko. When the news came at Wat Kern, we were sitting on the Tamad when the news came that Ajahn Chah had died. Then I looked and I come to go, <laughs> tears rolling down his face, you know, sorry. And we had, at the time, and they built the Chedi, and then they had a rotor going all through the time for the fortnight up to the cremation. Two monks would be in the Chedi, in the stupa, next to the burial, the way they were going to cremate, for, I think it was two or three hour rotors all the way through. I'm not sure how many hours. A few hours rotor. 
you'd sit there and meditate for that time. Then another two monks would come in, another two monks would come in. You'd put your names down for the date, and then um, Kantiko came to me and he said, Oh, Mimelo, he said, we're so lucky. He said, you've put our time down. He said, we're there before all the monks come in when they actually cremate the body. So we're already in there. He said, you're so lucky, so lucky to have that. That's a fortunate. So we were there when all the monks came in, you know. And um, of course, then everything, as everybody knows the story, it all went a bit funny. The lid of the chimney closed and the thing heated up and ex-Sajjan Pabakro was trying to put the fire out. The whole sarcophagus was going boom, boom, boom. Oh, it's Ajahn Chah's last teaching. And the fire brigade was called. All the monks rushed out. <laughs> you know, it's quite something. I think the Thai saw it as a bit inauspicious. I heard they thought, oh, I wasn't, but uh, we thought it was good fun. Then after, the other thing is that uh, everybody got part of the ashes. I think about 900 monks. So when all the ashes, the ati and the ashes came out, we all had a little polythene bag with the parts of the ashes in. And in my bag, I felt something hard and round. And he said, wow, typical. Mimolo, he gets such the luck. He's got the valve. Because Ajahn Chah had a valve put in his skull to release pressure, I think. From water on the brain, I think it was to release the pressure. A little valve. And... Uh, I said, oh, typical Wimelow, he's got the valve out of Ajahn Chah's head. He's so lucky, that's typical, this bloke comes here and gets this. Because when I opened it, life was proudly going to show the valve. It was actually a friction lighter out of a disposable lighter. <laughs> One of the workmen who built the sarcophagus. So it's just, I tend to have that kind of thing happen. <laughs> I visited a friend in... Sri Lanka once and uh, in a little hermitage and when I got there he said oh very, he said the food he says only me here and it's a very poor village he said so I don't know how much we'll get he said I should have let them know that you were going to be here someone was coming so then we went Bindabar and we came back and we got a big jar like this of curd water buffalo curd and he said women I said you got good comer for Food. He said, I'll never get curd. He said, and here you turn up, and suddenly a big jar of curd. <laughs> so, like the light, I think I like the thing in the bag. I unscrewed the top, and what was on top of this curd was a cockroach. <laughs> got a floating, he's taken up the whole of the top. <laughs> My friend was like, Oh, you can't eat this now. I said, Well, we can move it. <laughs> Just take it off. We could eat if we scraped out of it, but we didn't. <laughs> but despite having some things like that happen, I think one of the greatest things in my life was to be able to have been to Hampstead when Ajahn Chah came in a time of thousands of years, you know, and especially in the West, when all the conditions come together but not only me, but all of us here, you know, come together when we have the fortune to have come connected to great men. Like Ajahn Chah. As I'm saying, I'm sure if Ajahn Majiro or 
other people could sit up here and tell many, many stories, many, many stories. But it's really the sense of a being, the presence of a person, which has a very strong effect. And most of the people back then who were affected greatly by that. There were some other kind of things, he stories and things like that, which he would say just to monastics. It's not that they were terribly esoteric, but it was more concerned with monastic discipline and things like that. But he could even do that with humour and understanding. After this little talk of appreciation, I better not run off tomorrow. <laughs> tomorrow they say, where's Wimelo? I suddenly left in the middle of the night. He just said, I've had enough. <laughs> I said, I would have loved to have had lots of little stories, but it doesn't work like that. So in the times of depression, when you go through a difficult time, these are good things to reflect on in the history of the world. And we found ourselves in a set of conditions where we're fortunate enough to come into something which is better than winning the lottery. If someone said, would you prefer to have won the lottery or to have come in contact with Ajahn Smeda, Ajahn Chah? I know, I repeat, the lottery. <laughs> I'm actually going to add something little, shouldn't really, but there's something I was going to, and I don't usually, about whether we believe in psychic power, this, this story is just something from Australia. I was going to put it and then I forgot it. When I was in Australia, I'm sure it was Ajahn Brahm that told me. I'm sure someone will get in touch with me if I've got it a bit wrong. This is when Ajahn Chah was in his bed, paraplegic and not communicating at all. A woman turned up in the car park of Bodhinyana in Australia and she came in and she said, she had problems. She'd never been to the monastery. She was considering coming into the monastery and she was in the car park in the car. And then she looked round and she said, next to the car was a little monk. And he pointed at the gate. So she came in and he wasn't there. And then she came in and she saw Ajahn Brahm. And he said, what monk was that? And she pointed to a picture of Ajahn Chah and she said, it's him. So I don't know what Ajahn Chah was doing in Thailand as a paraplegic. <laughs> so I can't explain that. That was strange. Bless you.